Yeah, so how was your weekend? It was great. I mean, it was cool to see everybody. It was kind of fun rolling off the plane and walking into the Elixir meetup and then delivering a talk. Yeah, dude, that talk is so, so good. I'm excited for more people to see it. Cool. We um, we actually recorded it, the one that I gave the same talk, the previous night at the Elixir LA meetup. We started recording talks and putting them up on YouTube, which is super awesome. The talk itself came out okay. I don't think I presented that well, and there were some technical glitches, but uh, it's cool that we're starting to get that stuff out there, and I hope to refine the talk over the next couple months. Yeah, what made you want to do a talk about processes? I've been curious about processes for a long time. Probably in the last year or so, has been it's been a constant question about what are these things? And as I say in the talk, we talk about them all the time, but we never really break that level of abstraction. And I'm one of those people that has to know, like, what is this really doing? You know, how does this work under the hood? And as I started to dig deeper, I realized that there aren't a lot of resources for that uh, in the beam. And there are some technical manuals, but it's not like in Ruby where there's tons of blog posts about the Ruby interpreter, how the garbage collector works, like why some parts of the language are slow, how this is dealt with and that is dealt with. So it was a challenge to to uncover some of this stuff. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of meat in the talk. I think like just digging into how the memory works just on the process itself and how it's how it's all allocated and how the mailboxes work. It was like, I don't know, I got a lot from it. And I think I know a thing or two, but I clearly don't. So that was a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's not stuff that you really have to deal with in general production. I mean, if you're running under a certain amount of load or you have particular use cases, then yeah, you might have to tune garbage collection or um, how much, how big the heap is allocated for a certain process on startup. Have you run into that yet? No, I haven't. Yeah, me either. Like I never had anything that's like, oh God, this is weird. But Honestly, even just knowing about the, like, when we were talking about binaries and passing binaries around and, like, saying that you basically shouldn't be passing large binaries between processes, right? Yeah, but then James, who was in the audience... James Fish. Yeah. A.K.A. Fish Cakes. He was like, uh, don't worry about it, because anything larger than, what, 16K is automatically put on the a heap in the VM. Yeah, but then they were talking about reference counting there as well, right? So it has to do reference counting to know if it should be cleaned up. And I think um, David Antaramian was telling us about the fact that at Timber, that can be, they've run into problems where, where they were passing lots of binaries between lots of processes. It's actually much better just to do it in the, in the process um, that originated it. So in their case, it's like web requests. So there's a cowboy process, and they just try and do all of their the kind of processing of this binary in that in that uh, process. Yeah, and I think there's a danger in in coming to the language and thinking, oh wow, this is pretty fast, and it takes care of all this stuff for me, and uh, getting sloppy with your code and needlessly passing things around. Right, and you overuse the abstraction, right? Like that's a classic like pitfall that so many developers fall into all over the place, like oh, I've got this new abstraction. Let me just use it for everything. Yeah, and that's what I think is important about a talk like this is even though you're not going to use it that often in your day-to-day, it's nice having a sense for what's going on under the hood so you don't inadvertently do dumb things. Yeah, definitely. So uh, are you bummed that you didn't get to give it at MPEX? (laughs) I remember the first year we did the conference and uh, do you remember when we weren't sure if anyone was going to submit a talk? Yeah. We thought that we were going to have to get up and just like deliver our own talks. Yeah. 
Well, it turns out that we've grown to the point where I now cannot speak at my own conference. I honestly, like, so I honestly don't think that's such a bad thing, though, right? Like, in the way, um, I think it's good to promote people from outside. And we, sorry, we just got to say, like, the speakers this year were so good at MPEX NYC. Uh, I'm really excited for everyone to see the talks online. Um, Videos will be up pretty soon. Um, But yeah, just the the quality of speakers was really, really good. But also, caveat, not saying that yours (laughs) wouldn't have been that good. (laughs) But yeah, you know, just saying. It's true. I mean, every year we have to turn down a lot of excellent talk submissions because there's only so much time in the day. So if any of you who are listening have submitted a talk and didn't have it accepted, don't take it personally. I'm in the same boat. I know how it feels. Like, submit again next year. We'll see. But I think you're right that it does speak to the uh, the strengths of the talks that we had this year, which were much more technical than some of the last conferences. And it was really awesome to uh, have people to get into those details. Do you want to talk about a couple of your highlights? Um... Sure. One of my favorites was uh, Shanti Chalaram's talk about NIFs and um, writing your own NIFs when the language just isn't fast enough and you have to drop down into C to um, to compute numbers directly. So that, that problem that uh, she was describing is a perfect use case as well, right? So she was talking about building a recommendation engine and they needed this whole set of data and they basically couldn't couldn't do it fast enough in Elixir. So then that's when they dropped down into C via a NIF. And it was, it was just like, it's really cool to see a real world use case of that, you know? I think we talk about it a lot, but actually seeing someone be like, Yes, and this is the measurable performance impact that this had on us, on our real-world system with 5 million users. is actually super cool. Absolutely. And as we said a moment ago, Erlang is pretty fast out of the box. I mean, then there's a caveat of it's not straight ahead as fast as uh, the JVM or C or Fortran or any of those things. But it's there if you need it. And don't automatically reach for it, but it's cool to know what it looks like if you do have to reach for it and to see, here's the boilerplate you have to add in, here's the core of the logic you have to write, and here are some considerations about um, notifying your scheduler that you are doing something it doesn't know about, here's how you increment the reductions count. Uh, It's super interesting to have in your back pocket for when it does come up. Definitely. I thought one of my highlights of the day was definitely uh, Matt Trudel's talk about uh, the drum machine in Elixir. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I'm not going to spoil it, but basically they, they wrote this scheduling library and they wanted to test the scheduling library. So basically what they did is started to write just a simple like beep. like So just something that would just give a beep out every whatever N milliseconds. And then they basically realized that like, oh, we can tweak the frequency in which this does this. Oh, this is kind of like a drum machine. And then he expanded it into a full drum machine that called out to Ableton. Mm-hmm. And it was just ridiculously cool seeing that. But it, under the hood, it's all about like the power of the scheduler, right? And like that to me is super, super cool. Like showing that how fast that they could spin up processes and how reliably they could be calling all these processes because of the Erlang VM. And it was just, yeah, that was just awesome. Yeah, it was cool to watch him take a a beat that was running at whatever, 90 beats per minute, and then speed up the frequency so it got up to 3,000 
whatever it was. And at that point, it just sounds like noise. But it would also um, spit out numbers about what the drift was. So if I'm trying to schedule my next drum beat in, I don't know, a couple of milliseconds, and I'm doing this with several music tracks at the same time, how far off does it get? How much does the timer start to drag? And to see hard numbers around that was cool too. Yeah, so basically he was asking for microsecond scheduling inside of the VM, right? Which uh, mm-hmm. right now it only does milliseconds. So mm-hmm. it, I think that was a bit of a like a nerd snipe to the core team members to see if they could do it, but... Uh, yeah seems like a lot of work nerd snipe is one way to put um one way to put it another way is just like pressure from users of the language yeah that's true i mean it's not exactly like the most real world use case doing a drum machine but super cool nonetheless yeah and i mean i like to tell people this all the time it's important to have these like fun silly projects with no commercial appeal because it reminds us why we got into programming which is that this is fun this is cool. You get to make the computer do something. And it's not all just like delivering reports to customers. Yeah. Have you checked out the library that he was talking about? In the No, not yet. But I am interested in it because it seems like a lot of my projects involve scheduling something to happen later. I know. And I've, I've used the um, quantum crontab runner thing before. You know, the one that's like takes a crontab schedule and then it allows you to run. But um the library that Matt was talking about is called Skedex, which, by the way, brilliant. They're definitely going to get sued or like have a takedown from FedEx because they definitely <laughs> ripped off the logo. But Matt, we applaud you. And inside of there, one of the really cool concepts that he was showing is that um, you can set the time property, right? So you could rewind or fast forward time effectively. Mm-hmm. So it makes a really easy scheduler testing, which has always been a thing that's been kind of annoyingly hard in the past, actually. So, and that's what allowed them to adjust the BPM for the drum machine as well. So I just, yeah, I was just like, I remember when I read the proposal for that and I was like, holy crap, this sounds like a great talk. So, and it, it like totally lived up to, for, uh, to that for me. Yeah. Yeah. Very MPEX talk, particularly with the music focus. Oh yes, definitely. What else uh, did you like? What else did I like? Let's not get into Dave Thomas's talk just yet. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good point. I thought Brooklyn um, did an amazing job at like laying out where Elixir is in, in the broader ecosystem and kind of pointing us in different directions. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I thought that was a really good opener just to set the kind of tone for the day as well. What did you think about the neuroevolution in Elixir, Jeff Smith's talk? There was a lot in that. I, th- I mean, it's super cool, like being... Like, he, he kind of got into the NIF territory as well, right? Like, he was using all these Python libraries to do a lot of it. Mm-hmm. So what was another one of your favorites? So I definitely liked Voitex talk, which is all about date times. Actually, the talk was called Recurrences and Intervals, but it's really, like, focused on just kind of rethinking how you might think about dates and date times and intervals between those dates. Um and he ended up digging into uh, a research paper from the 80s that basically rethinks some of that date time parsing and basically has it as like a list of just a list of date times basically and then effectively if you want to say like how many days are there from this date to another date um it would generate that list lazily and then he could count it, it it's just like it's just like a really interesting way to think about date times so um and i appreciate that cuz you know developers, date times, time zones, all of that malarkey. What a pain. And the advice that I usually get from people is if you're trying to schedule out 
recurrences, just compute them for 10 years mm. and assume that that's going to be enough. Right, right. Because software life cycles aren't going to last 10 years. Is that what you're trying to say? The world will end? Well, your company will probably not be there in 10 years. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, that one seems more, uh, I don't know, a little bit more upbeat. Yeah, and it's easier just to pre-compute that and then blow them all away later if you need to instead of uh, setting up a schedule to keep generating recurring events all the time. So I, I'll um, put a link in the show notes to Wojtek's libraries that he wrote as a result of the talk. They were, just, they were just really, really good. I think there's some really interesting thoughts in there and something that, you know, if you're working with date times or anything like that and you need to compare to... Uh, two date times together and figure out what the interval is between it, I think that would be really helpful for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to say that I thought we had some really interesting conversations in the pub track of the uh, of the conference as well, Desmond. Ah, uh, yes, the pub track. I'm thinking specifically about, we were talking a lot to um, James Fish about community. And... To me, that was some of the most interesting parts of MPEX, like from the weekend. Obviously, the talks are amazing, but um, you know, from, we had these. We had a few of the core team members there, so we had three core team members, which is kind of cool that we uh, managed to have three of them in the same place. Mm-hmm. But James was talking a lot about the community's role and involvement in some of these libraries, and like how we can do more. And I think that's a really, I think it's a really interesting thing to kind of be thinking about. I don't think he was trying to say that we're, like no one's doing enough, but it was just it was coming from a place of kind of you know the core team owns a lot and there's a lot of complexity in some of these libraries and they want to like they want more people to get involved with it. And I think thinking about how, you know, people like myself and Desmond and all of the other organizers can help draw more people into this as well and kind of get more people involved in some of these more complex libraries like James was specifically talking a bit more about Postgrex and DB connection and these more lower line, like lower level libraries that we're all depending on that have a ton of complexity. So I don't know what your thoughts were there as well. I think there's a challenge in involving the community because a lot of the people I meet don't feel that confident in, in their Elixir. And it's one thing to write a library that encapsulates a well-known API Maybe you need to get, uh, I don't know, let's say you're geotagging something or uh, there's some other API library on the web that you could parse uh, yourself or just have some Elixir wrap around. That's fairly straightforward, but getting down into something more nitty gritty, writing a library for developers, that's more of a challenge. It's a different different beast. And, um, you know, a lot of us are new to this and... It takes people with experience and confidence to approach that sort of problem. Mm. So it would be great to see more people contributing because I feel like there's maybe a dozen, let's let's put the limit at 20 individuals around the world who work on some of these things. And for the language to really advance and go places, that number needs to be 10 times that. Yeah, definitely. And I'm so maybe, uh, so you're thinking it's more like a time thing, right? Like it's like, People just need more exposure to it, more kind of time uh, to to do this themselves so they can upskill and then be able to maybe kind of contribute. Yeah, I think you'll start to see that more and more as more companies adopt Elixir mm-hmm. and become successful and then bump up, bump up against 
some of these problems, some of these common problems that we're all facing with these shared libraries, then you'll have developers who will have had two, three, four years or more of experience and feel comfortable tackling them and companies that are willing to invest their time to address them or at least have people write fun stuff. Like I think uh, one of the big benefits to the Ruby community was GitHub getting big and having a lot of time on their hands and the resources to say, you know, you engineers, like, go write Hubot or um, someone figure out Capistrano. Like, that took some developers saying, we're just going to work on deployment full time for a couple of weeks and come up with a solution. And I think that will happen in the Elixir community. It just takes time for companies to reach a critical mass. So what you're saying is we all need to evangelize this to our companies even more. <laughs> yeah, and it would be great to see companies who are working in Elixir, if you're interested in solving some of these problems, maybe we could get a couple of companies together to um, maybe sponsor a developer part-time or ideally full-time for a short period of time to just deal with it. Yeah, I think about us at Frame, you know, we are huge users of all of this stuff and huge, huge users of so much open source. And like, I'm sure like a lot of companies were like, we're not giving back at the same rate that we're taking, right? And Honestly, like monetary give back is probably easier in a lot of ways than actually providing developer time to do things, especially when, you know, I, I, I want to give my engineers more time to kind of like work on more open source problems. But like I also have a roadmap and I have business objectives. Right. And not those things aren't always super aligned um, in that, like sometimes I want to like drive open, like open source a library we've worked on. But now we need to think about giving more time to the developers to kind of get it to the state where we can do that. But you're not the only person in that position of having a product roadmap that, you know, the business is saying this has to get done. And so how do people find the time to say, no, we're going to pause that roadmap for a bit or allocate um, some engineers to work on this thing that doesn't directly impact the business's bottom line? Yeah, no, no, no. I, I hear you. It's like it's like fighting for technical debt, right? Like it's fight, fighting for like refactoring of that. It's like... It's the same kind of thing. You're, you have to, if you really want to do it and you really believe in it, you have to just carve out a bunch of time, um, allocate some resource to it and say, this is our priority rather than this other thing. But like, yeah, I, I applaud all the people who are doing that. I'm not saying that we're in some unique position. I just think it's, uh, I still think it's difficult. So here's a question. Would it be easier for you to spend money for someone else to deal with it instead of allocating one of your engineers? Yeah, 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 definitely. I think it's, if I could say like, oh, we're going to put like $20,000 a year to, to an objective like that and then share the workload and feel like you're actually moving a community forward. Like to me, that's like 20K, 20K for like a big company isn't that much money, right? Like same as like, I, th I think about conference sponsorships in a similar way. You know, you're, you're talking like 5K or something to sponsor a conference and like, the, really the payback is like is huge right like if you're even if you're recruiting someone right now like if you get them and then you end up paying like a recruiting fee and it's 20 percent 20 percent of an engineer's salary in the u.s is huge and i i think that about you know you could consider this to be like a team investment right like you're saying like we're onboarding all these people we're getting them into the company and actually like this is going to help raise the company this is going to help us in the long run and it helps you in the community. It helps that community get like move forward and have some more progress. 
And then it also helps your company because, you know, you're out there and you're doing these things. And like, there's no substitute for that. Yeah. And I think it's even better than sponsoring a conference because the conference, there's the build up to it and there's promotion ahead of it. And then it happens and then it's over. Whereas if you um, sponsor one of these libraries, that's out there forever. Yeah. And I mean, that's like the idea of like Patreon on, on some level, right? Like doing that and then trying to you know, redistribute the wealth a bit more. And I, I think like, I don't know, I'm, I'm really for it. I think if we could drive that forward in the Elixir community, it could be a really great thing. Well, for anyone listening, if you work for a company that would be interested in having worked on, on some of these core libraries that we all use in our applications, but don't have the engineering resources to spare, but maybe have 10, 20, $30,000, it would be great to get a couple of these companies together. And that money could add up pretty quickly to find a developer to hire full-time on maybe a short-term basis. I don't know, thinking maybe we pick some high-value project and contract someone to work for three months on this and just move it forward. I mean, there are companies that hire Elixir engineers and give them spare time to work on some of these projects, and I think that's awesome and a big help to the community. I think it would be nice to have someone working on it 100% of the time instead of 20% of the time and really drive something forward. So uh, if any of you are interested in that, if your companies are interested in that, please reach out to us. We know developers who are experienced in this. We have these conferences running and the conferences are a great way to move the community forward. And I think we would also like to move the technical aspect of the language forward. Definitely. Hopefully we can do something there. So should we uh, circle back around to that 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 infamous topic from the MPEX, which was uh, Dave, Dave Thomas's, Thomas's closing keynote? That's right. Yeah, I'm excited for uh, you listeners to see it. And hopefully there's a few of you who were there who uh, saw it in person. It was, so I think like, so first of all, Dave definitely set out to be controversial, right? Like that, that is like the opening sentiment was like, I'm going to kind of annoy you and make you be annoyed about what you're doing and not feel great about it. And then came back around and kind of presented some ideas and why how we could be doing things better but i think for those of you that know dave he's quite vocal in the community about standards and and doing things a different way i think if you look at how he likes to like just gen servers for instance like splitting out the the kind of business logic or uh, the interface from the kind of business logic like a different idea and um i think like first of all applaud him for like trying to you know think about a different way of doing things and trying to move things forward i would i'm going to summarize the talk i'm probably i don't know if i'm going to do a good job of this but so for me the gist was basically we've dragged a lot around from what has come before and not all of that is great and i think dave was challenging us to think differently about some of that history that we're kind of dragging around in a couple of different areas. The first was why do we have this concept called application? And I kind of I, I kind of agree with this one. I think this is interesting. I think that was the least controversial one. Yeah, though. like and like I think we talked about this before. Like we have applications and then we always have to disambiguate them from saying like, well, this one's a library and this is an actual like stateful application that has processes. And often you see that divide and I think Dave was like why do we call it an application? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and not only is that an application, but then you're sort of overloading the word with, well, this is my project. Now you have an umbrella application. And then when you talk about releases, 
then you're deploying an application, but it's not really your application, it's an artifact. Yeah, definitely. I like So the solution from his side was really rethinking it and calling it a component, right? And then a li library? So there's libraries which don't contain state. That's just a bunch of functions that do stuff. There's a component which has state. So you probably have a supervision tree with gen servers underneath it. And then there is an assembly. An assembly, yeah. which is many components that come together. And this is sort of a higher level, like your your larger application. When you say IEX, run whatever, that would be an assembly. Yeah. So he, he's really pushing for this concept of lots of small composable components that you kind of bring together and then you configure inside of those components and at the assembly level as well, which is kind of interesting. So he basically wasn't that hot on how we're doing configuration right now. And like, I kind of get that part as well in some ways. I think like pointing out the fact that configuration is a bit weird when you um, when you have like you have a different application or uh, and then you're kind of configuring it at the the run you're configuring it like at at the site where you're using it rather than necessarily like at the application level or you're overriding that configuration at a different point. I thought I don't know. I thought some of his ideas about saying that like configuration is encapsulated. It's just like another module you call into to get your configuration, but it can be overridden at the assembly level is kind of interesting. It's going to take me a while to get used to those terms, though. Well, I do think that some work is needed there to shift the way we discuss things. Mm -hmm. And I think once you shift your language, then I think your thinking will follow. But we do need to, I don't know, it'd be nice to get clear around <laughs> what, like, what the different pieces are when we should use them. I mean, we've talked before on the podcast about when to use different, I'll call them application abstractions, because Elixir and Erlang are full of these from the ground up. Like, a process is sort of an application. I mean, it's similar to like an OS application. And then um, you have applications that run in, inside that when you say like use application that starts up its own supervision tree. And then you have an umbrella application and we say, well, when should you use an umbrella? When should you use this or that? And I think we need better clarity around around those guidelines, particularly for newcomers who are trying to get their head around all these new ways of designing programs. Mm, definitely. I, and yeah, and I don't think like what he was saying there was super controversial, right? Like the application side of things is like, I think if you look at it, you could say, yes, we could be doing this better and it would help the beginners out, definitely. And I think logically separating out the ideas of a library to something else whether it be called a component or something more i don't know more in line with what we have now even if you just called it a library and application it might simplify things yeah i thought that was the least controversial i did not agree with his his complaints about the lib directory i know i know i felt like you're like so um just for the listeners so <laughs> dave was pretty angry about the lib directory right so first of all he was angry about like why is it called lib and i i don't know I, you get used to those things. And you're like, sure, it's called lib, whatever. We could call it source, but it's basically the same job, right? It's like you need to put some code not in the top level. And I, I guess that's like part of the argument. He was like advocating for loads of small components where everything could be in like a couple of files. But he, so a compelling thing was this is the core part of your application. Why is it nested down a few folders deep? Whereas git config is at the top level. And okay, yeah, maybe, but like, I don't think that you should put your source files at the top level because that gets pretty cluttered. 
pretty quickly. Yeah, I'm honestly like I. <sighs> I don't know, like, I think I can look past a directory structure at this point. I'm like, whatever, like, I get it, All good organization is a good thing, but, like, I just, yeah, I don't know. I don't buy the, like, it has to be at the top level and lib looks bad and why is everything nested, like, nested differently? I don't know. Let's say that that's baggage that came down from um, an existing ecosystem. That organization has not once affected my ability to deliver software. <laughs> or my like application design like i haven't it hasn't caused any additional complexity right and i don't even think i've seen like beginners get tripped up on that right i, I don't know about you it seemed like a weird f- fight to pick yeah and then so the other side of that was like having um the mix like project name as a file at the at, uh inside of the lib at the top level as well um, and I, this part I actually get because he's he was completely right. He's like, this file usually contains either just the hello world string or all of your application. And I'm like, yeah, I've 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 definitely seen that. Right? How many times have you generated it and it's like still got the hello world bit inside of it? Plenty of times. Right. Or it's the entire interface, and then you're like, oh, I'm probably doing it wrong. But Yeah. I think the community does need some work around general project organization structure. I, I'm still not really comfortable with Phoenix 1.3's, like, underscore web folder and putting everything there. I mean, I, I, so, I end up doing something similar. I think it's nice to um, extract the Phoenix web interface from business logic. But that feels clunky, and the whole contexts approach... I mean, I like domain-driven design, but I, I don't agree with all those decisions, and I end up doing, I don't know, sort of my own thing, which... Which means you're doing it wrong, right? Which means I'm doing it wrong, and new developers <laughs> on the project have to figure out where stuff lives, and blah, blah, blah. But, but like, that's kind of... that's. I mean, unless you're doing, like, straight MVC where everything's in, like, the, the name directory, like, you always have to kind of figure out where things are, right? Mm-hmm. And even when, like, even when things are well-organized, you still have to figure out where they are and what they're named. Yeah, and it's an easy way to start bike shedding, which is not a discussion I'm really interested in having. Mm, I, I, honestly, I feel like talking about the directory structure like that was kind of bike shedding. Yeah, I mean, we've already spent, what, 10 minutes arguing about... Yeah, do any of these things, and it's like, who cares? <laughs> right, right, right. Just fuzzy find the file and deal with it. Yeah. Do you even have a tree, bro? <laughs> do you even tree your directory structure? No tree. No, I don't know. I, uh, I honestly, I do. I'm like, I, I like to see how things are organized. I still think organization is important, but you know what? You could call it source, and I would be fine. You can keep it as lib, and I would be fine. I don't really have any qualms with that. Did you ever use um, an editor called Lighttable, which came out a few years ago? No, but I was just talking to someone about that yesterday. So it, it came out, it was a project from the Clojure community, and it didn't really go anywhere, but it had the interesting concept, or um, at least promise, of doing away with the idea of source files. And if the editor understood your source code, it was a way of saying, whatever functions you're working on are just right in front of you. And it would hide where they lived on disk. And it was cool because like, it doesn't matter to the computer where these, where this code lives, what files they're in. I mean, assuming you're using a framework and compiler, mm-hmm. it doesn't care what the files are called. Yeah, it's, it's, it's asking, it's questioning received orthodoxy about why do these things have to live in certain files? Like, isn't it more important to see the stuff that's relevant to 
your task at hand or the functionality at hand in one place. And I always thought, yeah, that is cool. And that's an interesting rethink about it. And the only reason we have modules is just so we as humans can separate functionality. Like it, it doesn't have to be there. If we could find a way to get around that, to make the computer smarter, then we could do away with a whole host of these questions about where do these things live? What should they be called? Blah, blah, blah. Now, solving that problem, getting the computer smart enough to where it knows what the relevant pieces of code are, that's a challenge. Yeah, maybe we wouldn't even need to program if we do that, man. Write ourselves out of a job? Yeah, I'm I'm like, I have honestly, I've always wanted to write this like kind of dystopian novel about how some programmers program themselves out of a job and then there's just programmers on the street everywhere being like trying to find the last semblance of like human driven development. <laughs> human driven development. I think that premise would have worked if this were the 90s and like the techno future were still unknown. Man, I live in the 90s. What's it was up? <laughs> yeah. But you know, in 2018, it's like we've seen the future and it's ad networks. I thought we've seen the future and it's removing the lib directory. Oh. Maybe that too. <laughs> Maybe that too. Yeah. But let's move on. Let's move on to um, the next part. Maybe the last part of his talk, which was uh, he had beef with gen servers. He thought that gen servers, as we use them now, is too low a level of abstraction, requiring tons of boilerplate with um, these handle callbacks and then a client-facing interface on top of that. Mm. I <laughs> I don't know if I've ever had a problem with it. Have you? But I've never questioned it. Like, this is a stupid thing, right? Like, I was thinking about it in the talk. I'm like, I was like, no, that's how it is. <laughs> Which is, like, the whole point in the talk. I don't know. I've never, like, I I guess I don't write enough gen servers where I'm like, well, that's a problem, you know, having these two things co-located. But I get the argument that it's, like, a big ball of mud because you're doing that. Yeah, and I'm sympathetic to... Um you end up writing the same function twice. You have your sort of client call that turns around and calls gen server caster call. And that's a weird abstraction because you give you get some sort of like pretty client facing function, but the caller has to know whether you're doing something synchronously or, or asynchronously. Like it knows if it wants an answer right away or if it doesn't care. And so at that point, why not just call or cast from the call site? Right. I I mean, aren't there libraries that have, like, macroized this shit away as well? Yeah, that starts to go against the philosophy of, like, this is a functional language, be explicit. Right, but that's basically what Dave did in, this, in like, the talk at the end, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know, I've just never had a problem with it. I think, like, I get picking holes in it, and I get that we always, in the gen server implementation, we always have that, like, comment that's, like... Uh, callback functions or whatever we have <laughs> like that's dumb yeah that's true like it's stupid like we probably shouldn't have it but we're doing it deliberately to kind of separate out the like, idea of the interface calling something else and it is a client server and that's kind of what you have to do right i mean i would advocate for doing away with the client part of it because again the client has to know if it's synchronous or asynchronous which is the whole thing that that like client interface is supposedly hiding and the call strings i mean like whatever you know your handle cast or whatever handle info is switching on those usually encapsulate the same like message you know mm -hmm. it has the same um semantic meaning as the function i mean maybe it looks slightly different but so i how think would that you want to do it? you'd want to do it at the call site instead just say like yeah 
Just say gen like, server cast with the module. Yeah, true. I guess then you could end up having like one. I said this is exactly what Dave kind of did anyway, right? Like you end up having like one file that's like the um, the API for it, and then the other one that's like the implementation, which is kind of what you're advocating for because you'd push it to the call site, and you'd probably want to encapsulate it in a module or something. No, I wouldn't encapsulate it in a module. You wouldn't. I'm saying the the quote server implementation as we call it now. Mm-hmm. That's just what clients would call. Mm. Clients would cast directly to the process with whatever string that they wanted to do the thing. Hmm. And the arguments. Hmm. So then you remove that uh, middle layer of indirection where the module like turns around and gen server casts to itself. Like we don't need that intermediate function. And then so that gets rid of one chunk of 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 the uh, repetition. And then I think the other case of like, well, well, it's hard to test and, and you have this mess of code, you're going to have a mess of business logic one way or another. So I could see you have your handle cast um, function and maybe that's a little awkward to test. So that turns around and calls some like logic function that takes the state, does the thing, and then returns the updated state. And then the larger handle cast um, has the like reply tuple or the no reply uh, tuple. Mm. So would you make would you make those things like public, like those logic functions? I would put that in an internal logic module. Okay, and so then you could unit test that internal logic module. Given some state, it expects some result being returned. Exactly, and I wouldn't put it in a separate module because nothing else would call it, and like the two are are bound together. Yeah, I feel like you just like basically stumbled on Dave's solution. I thought Dave's solution was like coming up with a different uh, concept entirely where you wouldn't even be using GenServer. Yeah, no, 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 he did. He did. I guess kind of. He he had that like one-way, two-way like DSL thing that basically results in a macro, right? Like that does all this stuff under the hood, but yeah. Yeah, and I think once you get too far away from the language with a lot of these macros, then especially for such a core piece of functionality like a gen server i i've never felt like i needed that yeah but like at the same time like we just admitted that gen server is kind of low level in some ways right like it's like maybe it does need an abstraction on top of it and that's kind of what he was getting at but can you come up with a general abstraction for everyone I mean, you already kind of do with like handle call, handle cast, right? Like, and that's what he was basically wrapping those that then called a function. And like, I don't know, that that seems like at least you're hiding some of the like handle bits away. So in applications where I have needed a higher level of, of abstraction over gen server, I've written my own macros. So instead of using gen server, I use sexy gen server. And it gives me a lot of that functionality that's sort of specific to whatever I need that thing to do, which is cool for me, but it might not be appropriate for your app. I really, really hope you called it sexy chat stuff. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Sorry, for everyone out there, that comes from a Halloween debacle that we might have had at some point in the past where we hosted a Halloween Elixir event and someone came as a sexy gen server so shout out to that person uh who is forever in our memories as a as a gen server i don't think he actually intended to be a sexy gen server 
Wait, I didn't think that actually happened. I thought that was just a joke that you threatened to come as a sexy gent server. Oh, yeah, but then um, someone did. Really? What yeah. did they look like? They had, <laughs> they had like a rod for casting and then a microphone for calling. It was really smart. So I think we should do a Halloween episode where we kind of list out Elixir costume ideas. I don't remember this at all, man. <laughs> oh, and then he had like a chain full of links and he would give you a link. No, this was a dream that you had that you're mistaking for something that actually happened. If that was my dream, I probably need to go and like have therapy or something because that, that's weird, man. Elixir's gotten in your brain. That's it. Damn. I'm pretty sure this never actually happened. It, this happened. This happened. Desmond is remembering it wrong. But yes. So, back to the subject. We should link <laughs> to all of this in the show notes. Not the sexy gen server thing, but uh, Dave's library and the kind of thoughts that he's having. Um, and then, you know what? I asked Dave if he'd come on the show. And do you know what he said? He said yes. So, oh. uh, I think we could have a... A pseudo IRL conversation with Dave about this very subject and we can attempt to reason with him well whether we're right or whether we're wrong I think the important thing is that we have to have this conversation and uh, bat it around a little bit because yeah, definitely. I think it is important to, for people to propose these radical ideas and get people thinking about it and that's the way things move forward yeah, and like kudos to Dave for actually getting up and doing that as well, right? Like I think like just being able to say like no, challenge the status quo. Like let's keep trying to move this thing forward is a really good thing. Yeah, yeah. So uh, if any of you who are listening have some weird idea, then uh, go for it. Desmond loves a good weird idea. Yeah, so I, may- I do. Maybe loop him into it. I don't know. He might get some help. Yeah, totally. Yeah, we'll bring you on the podcast and have you talk about it. Yes. Yeah, actually, that's a good point. We are looking for more guests. So if you're, uh, I don't know, if you want to come on, you want to talk, you want to throw things around with us, we're, we're happy to do so. Yeah, and it fits in with our um, our idea of like moving the community forward with libraries that are useful. The flip side of that is like moving the community forward with fun stuff. <laughs> Definitely. So, um, yeah, if any of you out there uh, have input on either of that, like, get in touch with us. We want to see this stuff out there, and we'd love to help promote it. Yeah, definitely. So, I would say we will post all the videos as soon as they're out from MPEX. Hopefully those who weren't there get to check them out. Check out the ones we've mentioned, but there were some other fantastic talks. So just go through the library. Um, I'm sure you'll, you'll get something out of it, each and every one of those talks. So, And thank you to everyone who came on the day. And thank you to all of our speakers as well. Yeah, great, great conference. Congratulations to the organizers for putting that together. I was just doing a, a virtual clap. People can't see you doing that on a podcast, man. Damn it. Yeah, um, <laughs> I guess it makes sound. I could just thank you to everyone. <laughs> yeah, just, just, it's been a long day. And it's been a long podcast. So on that note, thanks everyone for joining us for another uh, episode of Elixir Talk. And we will see you next time. Keep elixiring, folks.